We've been spending quite a bit of time in John chapter 7 and 8, and the approach that I, I, I thought was going to save us a little bit of time, and maybe it has, I don't know how it would have worked if I had done it differently, is to be kind of going through the text and then occasionally take a theme that John deals with kind of in the entirety of the material and look at it. And we're going to start uh, and probably spend a, a good chunk of our time on the last of those big themes out of these chapters. So John chapter 7 and 8 occurs about six months before Jesus' crucifixion. It takes place in Jerusalem uh, during a festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is a, a fall harvest festival that looks back on God's provision to his people during the wilderness wanderings. What we're gonna, one of the things that we see in, in this chapter is that throughout the material, especially in chapter 7, there's a lot of kind of back and forth questioning about who Jesus is. And we see a lot of really bad reasoning that, that leads to wrong conclusions in that. And so before we finish these, what I wanted to do is look at this idea that comes up about how to exercise good judgment and discernment when it comes to uh, evaluating different ideas. Some of the stuff that I'm going to deal with, you, you, you can really see clearly in this chapter, and I'll, I'll point that out when I have the opportunity to do that. But I'm also going to throw in uh, some material that's either based on some things that I've seen or more likely is kind of based on my uh, personal experience. So this is going to be a little bit different than a typical study, at least this chunk of it. Uh, I'm hoping we'll be able to finish this and kind of get back in, into chapter 8 because we are towards the end of it, but we're, we're not going to finish chapter 8 today. Um, and you know, finally, I just want to say that you know, you know, th this is not something I've been able to adapt from one source in particular. It's kind of my own list, and so there probably are some significant things that are missing in it. Uh, the, the last comment I'll make is that this sort of grew out of a small group study, and so this was kind of designed originally as a discussion in, in a small group, and I, I think it was probably the most successful of them in, in the, the series that our, our small group did. So the main question that we're going to consider today is how to evaluate truth. And we can learn a lot from both the religious leaders and the crowds when they encounter God incarnate in, in these chapters, but they were unable to you know, exercise good judgment and rightly think through the claims that Jesus made, rightly look at his arguments in a rational way, because he, they should have accepted those arguments and they largely rejected them. So I'd like to go through uh, the, the, this idea in detail, and I, I think to begin with, what I would like to do is I would like to start by categorizing truth into two different categories. Um, I'm going to break this down into uh, what I'll call sacred truth and secular truth. You could certainly use different words, but sacred truth would be spiritual or, or moral reality. It's uh, you know, questions like, you know, what is God like? Uh, how does God command us to live? You know, who is Jesus Christ? Th th those are things that would kind of fall into the sacred realm. Secular truth would be things about this world. You know, what's the distance from the earth to the moon? You know, how do I best uh, help a, a broken leg to heal? You know, and those sorts of questions I, I certainly could say a lot about as a trained scientist, but I'm not going to do that because it's not really relevant to John. Uh, those are the sorts of questions that the world can answer well. We'll come back to uh, that a little bit more. What we're going to be focusing on is the, the part of truth that's far more important than that, and that would be sacred truth. Now, 
this gets a little bit more complicated because the sorts of questions that come up often have elements of sacred truth and elements of uh, secular truth to them. So one example of that would be, should I smoke tobacco? The Bible doesn't mention tobacco, and so you're not going to find a chapter and verse that give you advice on whether to smoke tobacco. And in fact, the Bible doesn't say anything about tobacco at all, and so you don't really have in, any information from Scripture to answer that question with. The, the world, on the other hand, has studied tobacco use extensively. There's very good studies that uh, show a variety of health consequences. There's also you know, kind of a biochemical understanding of what nicotine does. You know, it has you know, certain you know, pleasant effects on the, the brain that can be quantified. There's you know, positive reasons to smoke tobacco that you could, could look to. Uh, evidently, smokers you know, find the process to be enjoyable. And the, you know, there's, there's health effects from it. And so what you would need to do is you would need to you kind of weigh what we think is important and prioritize that we can see revealed in the scriptures with what we know about you know, a particular topic that's not covered in the scriptures. And so you, you really do need to use tools from both to be able to make an informed decision on a question like that. Um, you know, another uh, question that would have you know, significant elements of both would be maybe you know, how to treat you know, an advanced cancer. You could certainly look to medicine you know, for advice. You know, what is this cancer likely to do? You know, how long will I live and what would my life be like if I don't seek any treatment at all or if I you know, seek a, a, you know, a very non-invasive, you know, gentle sort of treatment? You know, how much would you know, chemotherapy or radiation therapy extend my life? How is that going to affect the quality of my life? And then, that, so that would be kind of secular sides of this that you would look at. Another thing is, you know, how is this going to impact you know, what I do in... Uh, you know, however long I have left on earth. You know, is it better to have you know, longer and maybe go through a, a difficult treatment regimen to be able to finish a ministry opportunity or things like that? And so there, there's definitely you know, significant aspects of uh, both sacred and secular truth that would go into that particular decision. The Bible focuses almost entirely on what I'm calling sacred truth. I, I, I don't want to say that the Bible has zero impact on secular truth. I think one example that you know, I would certainly look to is that you know, most of the individuals that are really credited with developing what we now call modern science were Christians. And their approach, which you know, um, came to be known as science, their approach to trying to understand the world around them, took s some biblical insights. They believed that you know, the world was rational and that it would follow a, a rational set of principles that were laid down by the Creator, and that by examining the world in a careful, systematic way, that they could find those principles. And science arose out of that. And it's not a coincidence that science arose in you know, the Christian West rather than you know, a number of other countries that in a lot of ways were more advanced than Europe was at the time. But you know, Europe had, did have those biblical insights. So I, I don't want to say that Christianity has no impact on, on secular things, but it, or, or on secular truth, but that, that's not the main thing that the Bible is concerned with. Um, so when I do say that you know, the, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of tools, at least, to, um, to you know, look at secular truth, let me say what I mean by that. 
you know, a medical doctor is probably not going to be able to perform heart bypass surgery with you know, a better technique based on the fact that they're a Christian or not. Uh, the way that heart surgery is done has been studied in medicine. You know, I know that when my wife had an accident and needed to have you know, serious reconstructive surgery on her lower leg, we didn't ask whether the doctor was a Christian or not because I, I think a Christian doctor would have treated her leg exactly the same way as an unbeliever would have. Um, an engineer who's a Christian you know, doesn't have biblical tools to help them design a more cost-effective bridge that meets certain engineering requirements. You know, the, the approach to you know, dealing with the stress and the strain, the materials requirements, even the aesthetics would be very similar uh, between Christians and non-Christians. Now, there probably are exceptions that you might be thinking of. Um, and my, my experience is that you, uh, those are, are really situations that involve a mix of secular and sacred truth. And so one thing that I think people might think of as an exception would be you know, a person that's in business who's a Christian. And that person, because they're a Christian, exercises honesty and integrity. They develop a, a reputation for honesty and integrity. And over time, you know, people come to trust that business. They'll, they'll go there preferentially, and that business might flourish because the, uh, the person who runs it acts in a Christian way. But you know, that, again, is a, it's a situation that has both some secular and some, um, you know, non-secular uh, truth to it. And you know, just to try to justify this, I, I found a, a piece that John Owen wrote. This is from a work called The Spirit in the Church. And the easiest way to find it, and probably the easiest way to understand it, is a modern abridgment of it. So it, uh, it's not going to sound like John Owen, but the, the person that did the abridgment actually is uh, you know, very careful uh, with this. So I'm going to go ahead and Read what uh, Owen wrote. Jesus said, When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. And that's John 16, 13. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He is truth essentially in himself. And he is the one who leads the church into all truth. But what does Jesus mean by all truth? He does not mean all truth absolutely. The Holy Spirit does not lead us into all historical, geographical, astronomical, and mathematical truth. The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth concerning the mysteries of the kingdom of God, of the gospel, of the counsel of God, the salvation of the church by Christ. The Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth necessary for faith and obedience. And so I think John Owen might be using different phrasing, but he's, he's kind of got the same categories that I'm using of sacred and, or sacred and secular. I, um, I, I know that the, the church that I grew up in, I, I was not taught things this way usually. And in fact, I probably would have gotten some comments by now if I had taught th this you know, 30 years ago in the, ch the church that I was growing up in. So let me come at this from one more perspective in case anyone's still a little bit on the fence about what I'm saying. Um, why might God not reveal more in Scripture of what I'm categorizing as, as secular truth. Um, maybe through Scripture itself, maybe through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's kind of a useful thought experiment just to sort of think, well, what would happen if God did? So personally, I'd be really interested in divinely revealed truth about how the stock market functions. <laughs> um, 
you know, even a, a small edge it could kind of help me to do quite a bit better than your, your average investor. Um, I could probably do pretty well for myself if I had that. Um, or just to use a different example, a, a doctor who's a Christian you know, would actually be able to provide you know, better treatment to their patients. They'd rise in their profession. They'd get more challenging and more lucrative cases. They'd you know, ad ad advance through this. And you can kind of see where that's going. If God gave us better secular knowledge, our instinct would be to go to him for that because that's what we want. And throughout John, we've seen that. You know, Jesus provides uh, physical bread to people in the wilderness and they come to him for more bread and he says, no, I want to give you myself. And they say, no, we want more bread. <laughs> um, God wants to give us something far, far greater. And so we see in this scripture that God wants to give us himself. We see that in John 6. Um, that offer is really clear, but we don't have taste, a taste for that. Uh, we, um, we, we, even us you know, as believers don't have as much taste as we should considering the, you know, the magnitude of what God is offering. And that's just evidenced by how hard it is for all of us, including me, to, to find enough time to study our Bibles compared to, to other things that we do. You, left to our own devices, we would happily settle for divinely inspired stock tips and not come for something far richer. So when it, when it comes to discerning truth, what I'm going to be focusing on only is sacred truth. And be, I'm going to do that because it's far more important and because that's what John 7 and 8 is talking about. The, the world can often answer secular questions quite well, but it, it can't answer the far more important questions that uh, we, we see throughout Scripture, but especially in these chapters. Those can only be answered by special revelation from God. So the, the first thing to kind of help us think about this topic of truth is that we have far more truth that's revealed in the Word of God, uh, the, 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 the Bible, than anyone in this room could possibly understand in many lifetimes. Uh, our task is to recognize what that is, and maybe more importantly, you know, often that, that truth is not hard to recognize so much as it's hard to accept. Um, it takes an appropriate condition of the heart uh, to accept this much more than it takes intelligence and intellect. Uh, we see that in these chapters with the willful blindness. It's not lack of scriptural knowledge. It's not intellectual capability or education that's the obstacle that keeps people from coming to, to Jesus and, and seeing Jesus rightly in these chapters. It's a willful blindness to spiritual truth. Um, one, one verse in particular that points that out would be John seven seventeen. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So Jesus is speaking specifically about recognizing whether he's from God or not, but I, I, I do think it's reasonable to apply that to other theological principles as well. I think there, there's good correspondence. The next uh, thing I, I would point to is you, to work on, a, on cultivating a heart that wants to discern uh, truth, not a heart that seeks to affirm its own desires. And we, we see again and again in these chapters that people are going into a situation wanting a specific outcome. They would like to have a way of justifying themselves. They would like for their religious efforts to amount to something. They would like for their re religious heritage to give them favor with God. Um, and so when, the, when that's challenged, they look for reasons to reject it. So 
how is it that we try to cultivate a heart that wants to discern truth uh, rather than a heart that wants to affirm its own desires? Um, and th this can only start by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. An unregenerate heart simply will not accept its desperate need for Jesus, and that, that heart is always going to seek self-justification. But regeneration only begins that process of discerning spiritual truth. Regeneration is huge. It, you know, it opens an eye, set of eyes that were previously entirely blind to be able to start to see spiritual reality. But um, you know, the, the, it's a process that's ongoing. Um, that, that heart should hopefully become more and more receptive to, to spiritual truth, but it's always going to be a, a work in progress. And so one of the things that you can look back on in church history are some of the giants, and you'll see that most of them uh, have kind of an obvious blindness in, in certain aspects of their life. Uh, Edwards, m some of you might be surprised to learn, but I actually researched this, it's correct, owned a slave. Uh, and so in spite of Edward's great intellect, his real devotion to Scripture and all the insights that he had, you know, he, he was blind in that particular area and, and never did, I think, come to a, a better understanding of that. Luther, uh, unfortunately, was notoriously anti-Semitic. Uh, Luther did a great deal. I think he had a lot of great contributions, but uh, was you know, very seriously mistaken in that. Never, never did come to have a completely right understanding of things. Um, you know, one of my favorites, C.S. Lewis, has a lot of you know, you know, incorrect doctrine. You know, he was kind of a borderline universalist. That would, I, to me, at least be the most serious of uh, the errors that, that he had. Um, you know, in, in spite, I think, of you know, a great intellect and really trying to discern truth. So it's, it's not something that we ever become perfect at. We need to recognize that our minds are remarkably poor at looking at, it, at an issue from a neutral standpoint. Instead, what our minds are really good at is affirming preconceived notions. We expect something to be true, and we're good at taking whatever information we get and twisting that information into support for what we want to be true. That, that's simply how the human mind operates. Uh, any information that kind of naturally supports what we believe to be true, kind of becomes en enlarged and its importance magnified in our minds. Any information that challenges a preconception tends to be you know, minimized or discredited or distorted or, or in some way neutralized because it's a threat to what we want to accept. Uh, and this is not something that we'll probably ever be able to change this side of heaven. But uh, it, it is something that you can be aware of and you can kind of catch yourself doing it. And if, if you're aware of it and you can catch yourself doing it, you can start to try to avoid missing information and insights that could actually lead you to a more correct view, a, a better way of, of thinking through things. And we, we certainly see that tendency on full display in these chapters. So the crowd initially accepts Jesus' claim, but once Jesus challenged their confidence in their intrinsic goodness and their merit before God, they wouldn't listen to him further and they dismissed his arguments. Th those arguments were flawless. They were devastating. There, there, there wasn't a, a response that the crowd could mount to them. But they didn't even try to counter the arguments. And so the, instead, they you know, insult him and eventually pick up uh, stones to kill him rather than change their opinion. You know, and we, we can see this on certain issues today. There's you know, issues that I just consider indefensible, not that, it's not that a, a Christian couldn't possibly hold them, but a rational person couldn't hold them. Um, maybe 
one that I might point to. It, it's a relatively harmless belief. I, I wouldn't go out of my way to try to change someone. But there's a lot of Christians who believe it's absolutely wrong for a Christian to drink alcohol under any circumstances. Um, I don't think that view is defensible biblically. And out of morbid curiosity, I've occasionally looked at some rather intelligent people otherwise that hold that view and watched them try to defend it. <laughs> and you know, it, it, it's really easy to see them you know, starting with a view that they have to support and looking for ways to support it. Um, now, I know I'm guilty of that on other thi things, and I'm you know, b blind to it when I do it, just as th they're blind to it on an issue where I can see that happening. And so we don't want to say, okay, they're making that mistake. We want to be aware that we're susceptible to that same type of thinking and, and, and try to at least catch ourselves doing it. Uh, kind of moving to things that are a little bit more uh, practical, we'll, we'll go more practical still, but what do we do to counter this? And I think the, the f place to start is to, you know, praying to God for wisdom and discernment. So we, we see this very clearly stated in James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, that verse is not talking about stock tips. It's talking about understanding God better. You know, it's talking about you know, seeing in a passage, passage of Scripture what God has to say to us. Um, and you know, maybe even uh, as importantly, you know, pray for receptivity to accept that wisdom once it's revealed to us. There's a lot in the Bible that's plainly stated that we don't accept on some level. We might even say, okay, well, this is stated in Scripture, and then I, I uh, intellectually believe it, but then our lives often show that we don't fully believe it. If, if we really believed the, uh, what Jesus Christ has, has done for us, and if we really believed God's statements that, you know, it's always a bad thing to sin, we wouldn't sin. <laughs> but we do. <laughs> and so every time we sin, we show that we don't believe as firmly things that we believe <laughs> as we should. Um, moving on to something more practical, I, I can't find chapter and verse for this, but I, I, I do think it's consistent with Scripture. You know, if you're trying to evaluate two different ways of, of looking at things, two, two different possibilities for uh, sacred truth, which of those positions most glorifies God? It might sound simple, but I've found that to be surprisingly helpful and, and useful to me over the years. And I, I've never found an instance where it fails. It, now, there may be situations where you know, both truths would glorify God about equally, or it might be hard to see which one glorifies God more, and so the, the principle doesn't help much, but it, it does seem to lead towards uh, more accurate thinking. Um, you know, re regenerate minds are certainly prone to making more out of human ability, and we're prone to seeing less of God's glory than sound judgment can allow, and we, we see this idea in uh, verse, or chapter 7, verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So Jesus isn't teaching exactly about weighing theological positions here. He's teaching about evaluating him. But it, it does seem reasonable that that same principle can be used elsewhere. Uh, a very important one, not an adequate one on its own, 
is to know the scripture thoroughly. Uh, and maybe a, a, a place to start in, in looking at this issue, issue is that there's large parts of what we would call evangelicalism today in the church that really emphasize divine revelation from the Holy Spirit, which is appropriate. The Bible emphasizes that. But what they mean when they talk about that is probably something different than what the Scripture is saying. The, the picture that you might um, you know, get easily if you, you listen to that is that by having more faith, by being more righteous, by doing more for the kingdom, by being more humble, you know, the Spirit will put information into your head, just sort of pops in there. Um, and it's not uncommon for you know, people that, that view things that way to interpret you know, ideas that come to their minds or feelings or a, a sense of certainty about something as uh, being a clearly divine revelation from God. And since it's God's leading, it would obviously uh, you know, be in conflict with the principle of faith to question it or to treat that as, as uncertain. That might even affect their ability to get more revelation that way. But that's not how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit normally reveals spiritual truth through Scripture. Most of us know the life of the Apostle Paul very well, and we just had an excellent study on the book of Acts in, in this church. Um, but there's a period that's almost neglected by, by Acts, and we only have a, a short description. It's a three-year period, and I think it's a very important period in, in Paul's life and his formation. Paul talks about it in Galatians 1.11, uh, and I'm going to read for a little bit. Um, I'll, I'll skip a section that's not relevant to what I'm trying to get at. But this is a period that's for uh, three years immediately after his conversion, where Acts really records nothing. He didn't seem to have a significant ministry during that time. Um, but I think that's, um, that period was very important to his ministry, as I'm going to argue. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached to be, or sorry, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. But when he, he who had sent me, up, or sorry, when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem uh, to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. So after Paul's conversion, there's this three-year period where the gospel is revealed to him. Um, he doesn't interact with other church figures in that time, apparently, but how was the gospel revealed to Paul? And why did it take three years? If it was just sort of, you know, popped in there from the Holy Spirit, could have been a lot faster. I, I would certainly argue that you know, the answer is um, that Paul spent that time studying the Scripture carefully. And by the Scripture, the only thing that he would have had at that point was the Old Testament because none of the New Testament would have been written. And he studied that intently and closely, and he saw the gospel in it. And I would point to Paul's epistles in defense of that. When Paul explains the gospel and when he defends it, he always does it from the Old Testament. And I think that is the way that the Spirit revealed it to him. Through careful study over three years to see the gospel that was you know, clearly laid out in the Old Testament scriptures but that Paul had been blind to previously. 
you know, in, in his years as a Pharisee where he, he didn't see the gospel at all in, in that scripture. He knew the scripture, but didn't see it. And then in, the, in that three years, he, he came to see it. And we have the product of that in the epistles. I, I think if you could ask Paul whether the gospel was revealed to him by the Spirit or whether he came to understand it by exceedingly careful study of the scripture, he would wonder why we felt the need to separate those two ideas. Um, I, I, and I, I don't want to say that those two are identical things. Uh, it's certainly possible to study the Scripture without the, the Spirit to know profit. And you know, Paul had done that you know, for his life up to the point of his conversion. He had studied the Scripture intently, and you know, it, it only kind of dug him deeper into his particular pattern of sin. Um, <clears throat> But the, the scripture that's read with the illumination of the Holy Spirit is, is what reveals truth. And the scriptures are the main way that God reveals truth. If we're not consistently going to the scriptures seeking truth in the same way that a prospector would be you know, going through a, a piece of land where he thinks there's going to be gold, trying to find that gold, we don't have any right to expect God to reveal truth to us through any other means. There's another reason, I think, to be grateful that the Holy Spirit reveals truth through the Scripture and you know, not through special revelation. Uh, you know, scripture is a resource that we all have access to. We can all go and test a statement that's been made objectively. If something I'm saying doesn't sound right, go to the Scripture and check it. Um, test it. <laughs> uh, you, know, you, you have the same resource that I have uh, for that divine revelation. We're kind of all on the, the same playing field. When the Spirit reveals truth through Scripture, anyone can go there to see whether that revelation is authentic. We don't have to imagine the chaos that would ensue if truth were revealed primarily by you know, specific revelation to certain individuals. All we need to do is look at modern televangelism, or at least certain forms of that, where you know, pastor will say that God revealed to him that unless you send a certain amount of money to my ministry, he's going to strike me dead. Um, or or you know, similarly absurd claims that obviously can't be supported in, in, in Scripture. Um, so the idea of getting truth by you know, careful of study of Scriptures is not as exciting as you know, more overtly supernatural revelation. But the excitement that, you know, uh, that accompanies it, if we want to say that, uh, <clears throat> this, this uh, incorrectly discerned revelation is not the sort of excitement that we should want. Um, you cer certainly treat with extreme caution and skepticism any claims of extra-biblical revelation. So, it, returning to this idea of knowing the scriptures, um, more is meant scripturally than intellectual assent. Uh, so I, I'm going to go back to that same paraphrase of John Owen that, that says this a lot better than I would be able to say it. Uh, this is, again, from John Owen's work, you know, The Spirit and the Church. Many seem to attain to great knowledge in, in Scripture without the inward illumination of the Spirit. However, there is a difference between the Greek gnosis, meaning knowledge, and epinosis, meaning acknowledgement. The former on its own, affects only the speculative part of the mind. It does little good and much harm. It is the knowledge that puffs up. And you know, stepping out of John Owen, that would be the sort of knowledge that the religious leaders had. Uh, you know, they, they knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, 
but they couldn't recognize what the scripture was pointing to when he, you know, Jesus stood in front of them. The latter knowledge, that's the epinosis, meaning acknowledgement, <clears throat> on the other hand, gives the mind an experience of power and force of truth, transforming the soul in all its desires, bringing the full assurance of understanding uh, to, to the mind itself. And uh, Owen quotes about 12 scriptures uh, to support that. This knowledge is only attainable uh, by the saving illumination of the Spirit of God. Men may have knowledge of words and the meaning of propositions of the Scripture without having a knowledge of the, sa the, of the th things themselves. This knowledge only informs the mind, but does not really illuminate and enlighten it. So, theology has been turned into an art or a science instead of a spiritual wisdom and understanding of divine mysteries. This knowledge does not bring all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, nor has it any purifying effect. It does not enable men to trust God and cling firmly, cling firmly to Him by love. To know the name of God um, in this psalm is to know the revelation that He has made of Himself, His mind, and His will in Scripture. This enables us to uh, try the spirits or test the spirits, I think, in a modern translation. There are three errors to avoid. Some pretend to be guided by the Spirit and neglect the Word. Some despise the teaching of the Spirit and trust their own understanding of the Word. Others reject both the Spirit and the Word and go after another rule or guide. To none of these is the promise of the Spirit given. They are left uh, to their foolish, corrupt imaginations. Scripture is the believer's rule, and the Holy Spirit is his guide. Do we continue a prayer, sorry, do we continue in prayer and abound in prayer as we ought? For the Spirit, uh, sorry, for, the, for that Spirit who alone can lead us into all truth, for that unction which teaches us all things with, an, with assurance and experience. There is no duty in this world more acceptable to God than fervent prayers for a right understanding of His mind and the will of His word. On this, everything else depends. So the next thing I'd like to move to, we'll go through a little bit faster, is going to be more practical advice. Um, these are, are things that you know, I probably couldn't point to in Scripture, at least in, a, in an easy way. Some of these may be there, but I, I still think that these are helpful. One would certainly be to understand the Christian worldview deeply, and if you're kind of following along in the notes, uh, these are going to come quite a bit faster. Um, th these are points that are relatively close together, and I've got kind of a fill-in-the-blank section, which I don't normally have. <clears throat> So learning to apply biblical thinking to, to all areas of life and kind of understanding you know, holistically the, the way that Christians see the world better is very important to be able to evaluate you know, a specific uh, truth. And, you know, so what I'm meaning by truth isn't some, some of the big elements of the gospel, the, the things that you need to be saved, but maybe secondary issues. Uh, doctrine would be you know, something like that. You know, la last week, for example, we talked about the person the perseverance of the saints. And you know, whether to accept that as, as true or not would be you know, the, the sort of truth that I'm you're kind of moving on to how to evaluate now. Listen to multiple sides. It's particularly important not to listen to one side's explanation of all the other sides. There's something that you'll hear called a straw man argument. And what that means is that someone that believes one position 
will state the other position in a very weak form that's easy to knock down. It's kind of easy to knock down a straw man. Uh, and uh, it, it's something that you, it, it, you, you need to be careful of. You always want to listen to the side stating their own position, not the other side statement of that position. Don't rely on simple sound bites. That, that's something that's particularly true in this age. Um, a lot of the you know, important and controversial ideas have a lot of depth and complexity to them. They, you, you, you can come up with a simple slogan that sounds really good and it makes for a great Facebook meme, but it's not the same as really understanding the issue. Now, I'm not against you know, uh, kind of a, a good one or two sentence quote posted on Facebook. You know, there's someone in the church that, that does that regularly, and I appreciate those quotes. They're good. <laughs> but that just don't mistake knowing a soundbite that sounds logical for being the same thing as understanding an issue, uh, which, which is almost always going to involve a lot more depth and complexity. Don't be afraid to shift positions. You know, a lot of us came to Reformed theology from you know, different backgrounds, and you know, we wouldn't have done that if we you know, hadn't been willing to you know, look at things that we had been taught, question them against the Scripture, and say, you know, which fits the Scripture better? And I, I honestly think if anyone takes the time to do that, they're going to be moving more and more towards Reformed theology. Will they make it here? Maybe they'll make it to something slightly different, but they'll at least be moving, I think, in the right direction. Um, you know, if, a, if one of the views that you hold is challenged in a way that seems reasonable, it's, it, it's worth examining the view, but one of the things to do is ask why you hold that view. If it's only because everyone around you tends to hold that view, it um, doesn't mean the view's wrong, but it means it's at least a good thing to understand that view better and to examine it in a deeper way. You know, I, I could certainly point to the, the vast majority of Baptists that really do not understand the issues of uh, the credo-baptist or the pedo-baptist position well at all. That would be true for me for most of my life. It's not an issue that can be summed up quickly, but it's an issue that most of my life I just assumed this has to be correct and there's no possibility that the other one was correct until I examined them. Um, and if the view that you held is, is correct, you, you haven't lost anything. You've examined that and it's, you've, you understand why you hold it uh, much better. And so hopefully your understanding of things has been strengthened by looking at it. Um, look at history. You know, a view that stood the test of time is usually going to be more reliable than a relatively new idea. That, that isn't to say that there aren't new ideas that come along that are good. Uh, one in, in particular that you know, has happened you know, in the last hundred years, uh, less than that, would be you know, some of the work that Meredith Klein has done on you know, looking at the relationship between you know, uh, treaties in the ancient world and uh, the, the way that God lays out revelation in the Pentateuch, especially. Um, that's relatively new theology, but I think it's right. Um, so I'm, I'm not saying that, an, that a new idea is automatically suspect, or it, it, but it should be taken with caution. Um, and you, often 
you know, an idea is one that's kind of been discredited and, and abandoned again and again through history, and it's not very difficult to see that if you kind of take the time to look at something in history. Another practical one is to watch out for an argument that focuses on demonizing the other side. And to me, that's usually a warning sign that that position is really weak on its own. Um, I grew up hearing you know, what a bunch of terrible, horrible, no good, very, or sorry, what a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad person John Calvin was. Um, and the, the intended point of that, I don't think the person knew anything about Calvin or really cared about Calvin specifically, but it, it was an attempt to discredit Calvinism. Uh, I, I don't think that uh, most of the people that do that even understand that Calvinism had little to do with John Calvin. Uh, most of it had been formulated before Calvin uh, you, w was active, in fact. Um, I, I was told that Calvinism should be rejected because all Calvinists are zealously evangeli uh, evangelical about their theology and that they would only you know, take over and destroy churches if given the, the chance. I never heard a, a solid explanation of the basic theology that was held by the various sides. And I don't think that you know, many really understood that at, at a very significant level. Um, Let's see. Um, the, the point, though, is that what we would call Calvinism, what I like to call monergism, um, it, it, it's correct to the extent that it fits with the summation of scriptural teaching better than any other way of trying to systematize that teaching. It, it's not correct or incorrect because of you know, what sort of person John Calvin was um, or the, those that are more responsible for originating the, um, the theology. And we, we see that in this passage, in fact. You know, Jesus' op opponents are trying to do this to them, or to, to Jesus. You know, they, they say that Jesus is demon-possessed, a Galilean. Uh, they seem to uh, question the legitimacy of his birth, and they even call him a Samaritan, which would be a, a very uh, strong insult in that, in that day. They can't discredit his words or deeds, so they unfairly try to discredit him. And the more that a side focuses on doing that, the more likely that that is a, 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 as a sign of, of kind of weaknesses on their uh, arguments. Now, I probably said something not particularly nice about televangelists, and so it doesn't you know, necessarily mean that a, a side that does that to an extent is wrong, but it's a, a warning sign. Um, the next point is to watch out for pride. We often have a very difficult time admitting to others that we're wrong. And honestly, I think most of us have a more difficult time yet admitting to ourselves that we're wrong on an issue. Uh, it's easy to see that in others, where they, they hold on to a wrong position well past the point of absurdity because they're just not open to accepting that they're wrong. Um, and when we see others doing this, what that means is that we do it and we don't see it. Uh, so it's, it's, it, it's something that can, can happen to everyone. It's just the, the way that our, our minds work. Um, kind of similar to this along the same lines, it is important to show some humility. So let's say that I were to disagree with Mark Anderson on an attribute of God. This is something that Mark Anderson has spent many hundreds of hours and read, you know, long <laughs> 
careful books. He's, he's worked through this issue incredibly carefully. I've gone to church. I've listened to a lot of sermons on that. I've read a little bit on the subject, but probably not a tenth of what Mark Anderson has read on the subject. Um, the, the effort that Mark has put into that, it doesn't mean that he's right on every uh, facet of his understanding of the subject. I, I don't know that he's wrong on anything. <laughs> but, you know, people that are very studied do, uh, they don't always reach the same conclusions. That means that one of them is at least incorrect on things. There's people that know the attributes of God as well as Mark that have reached different conclusions. Um, but I would be very foolish to disregard Mark, Mark's opinion in favor of something that I just picked up hearing a sermon a few years ago and I just sort of accepted. Uh, the reason is I haven't put in the, the same level of study. Um, I don't know the relevant passages as well. I haven't gone through the detailed arguments that, that Mark has worked through. You know, if, if Mark held a, uh, a different view than what I always held, the appropriate thing would be to go to Mark and say, you know, I, I heard this alternate view expressed. These are kind of the reasons for it. What do you think? Um, and that, that would be kind of an intellectually humble way of you know, kind of de dealing with a possible disagreement. Um, I think simply go going to Mark and saying, you're wrong, I heard this someplace, would be not humble. Um, so it, th that, that's kind of what I'm saying and try to have a, a level of humility um, you know, kind of based on how well you understand things. Um, so I am out of time and I think we've, we've kind of just finished uh, this. I know that this is, didn't advance us as far as I had hoped in chapter 7 and 8 but the good news is, is this is the last of the topics that I wanted to kind of look at you, for the, those chapters. So we will be able to finish chapter 8 and I believe ch start chapter 9 next time and I think we do have time maybe for one question. Okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us uh, all of the truth that we need for the most important thing, and that is knowing you. I pray that we would desire more fervently to know you and that we would go to your, uh, uh, your primary source of revealing that truth to us, the scripture, and that we would examine it and we would seek to understand you. I pray that we would sharpen our minds and be able to, to use the scripture more effectively to know you better and that that knowledge of you would transform our lives uh, and make us more into the image of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.